Please be seated. Grace to you and peace from the Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, during these summer months, we are uh, seizing the opportunity to review the basic teachings of our Lutheran Christian faith in a series we're calling God Connects. And today, our focus is on the nature of God. To help us out with this, we're making use of a resource provided by Lutheran Hour Ministries, a series of videos uh, uh, featuring, as the speaker, Pastor Greg Seltz, the Lutheran Hour speaker. And by the way, these videos are also available on our church website, sotdaz.org so that you can go back and review them anytime you wish, even share them with someone else. Uh, if you go on our website and find the section on our beliefs, scroll down to the bottom of that section on that page, all of these videos are available for you to view anytime. But let's watch the video today on the nature of God. Our Earth is an amazing place. Our planet is positioned at just the right distance from the sun, supplied with the correct chemicals and elements to sustain life. The world is teeming with natural wonders which are powerful, breathtaking, and majestic. Earth is also home to creatures of every shape and size roaming the land under the authority of an intricately designed master, the human race. Some might argue that these things were created by chance or even by accident. But in truth, creation provides for us a special glimpse of the one who created it, God our Father. But nature doesn't tell us everything we want or need to know. So who exactly is God? Does God really exist? And how will I know? People have been asking these questions for thousands of years. We, we've got a natural curiosity about the origin and workings of our world. We learn some things about God from what he reveals to us through nature, but much more about him in his word, the Bible. So as you would expect from any good story, to find answers, we start at the beginning in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God, who is eternal, existed before the creation of the universe. Through the Bible, God reveals many things about himself to us. We learn that he's all-powerful, all-knowing, and present everywhere. We see God described as eternal, completely without sin, and just. But the most amazing characteristic of God described in the Bible is God is love. This simple sentence does not say that God has the characteristic of being loving. It says that his very essence is love. God is love. So what else has God revealed to us? We learn that there are three distinct persons who make up this one God. We call this the Trinity. The Bible says that there's only one God, but it also provides evidence of all three persons of the Trinity. Here's an example. When Jesus had been baptized and was praying, 
the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, the Father saying, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. In this Bible verse, the Father, the Son Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are present, each one individually. The first person is God the Father, who we know as our Creator. Like an earthly father, he, he loves you, he protects you from harm, and he provides for all of your needs. The second person is God the Son, namely Jesus Christ, who, whose purpose was to provide a solution to the problem of sin and death. And finally, there is the third person, God the Holy Spirit. He is the one Christ promised to send to create faith in our hearts and to help it grow. How can God be three and yet one? Well, one way to look at it is to consider an apple. Three distinct parts, the skin, the flesh, and the core, all different, but yet they're all equally apple. Analogies like the apple can help us visualize how three persons of the Trinity relate to one another, but it may not completely eliminate misunderstandings. The idea of three distinct persons being in one Almighty God is difficult for us to fully understand. But then again, what created thing can fully understand its creator? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Sure seems simple, but for some, it's not. Some people have a hard time believing that everything was created by God, speaking it into existence. Today, the alternative theory of the origin of life, macroevolution, is promoted as scientific fact. Now that's curious because science itself says that for something to be a scientific fact, it must be observable and repeatable. Obviously, the origin of the universe meets neither requirement. But when you consider the nature of God, His power and great love for us, combined with the majesty of the world in which we live, it's hard to imagine any other explanation. People often question the biblical account of creation because things just seem older than mere thousands of years that the Bible says they are. Perhaps this will help. Keep in mind that God has the power to do whatever He wants, and then ask yourself, how tall was Adam on the day after he was created? The answer, five or six feet tall. Even though he was just a day old, he was not a baby, but created as an adult. Adam and Eve were placed in a garden. The trees were not seeds in the ground, but mature trees that would have appeared to be decades old. These trees would have been growing in soil which would have included organic matter of things that appeared to have lived before. If Adam were to look to the stars, the light coming from them would have appeared to be traveling for years. The point is this. God has the power to create a mature, functioning world. And that's what he did. Of the millions of things God created during those six days, He saved us for last. Genesis 1.26 explains how special we are to Him. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our own image, after our own likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Humans are special. No other part of creation can claim to have been made in the image of God or to have been given authority over the rest of creation to take good care of it. God loves us deeply, so much so that when the first people, Adam and Eve, fell into sin, 
he promised to send his one and only son, Jesus, to make right everything that was ruined by sin. Through Jesus, he gives us the gift to be with him for eternity in the very heavens he created. After all, that's been the plan all along, ever since the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. When we talk about the nature of God, the question we're basically asking is, what are God's basic characteristics? And of course, uh, on the video, you heard Pastor Seltz describe some of them, that God is creative as our creator, that he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, that he's present everywhere, that he is three divine persons in one divine essence we call the Trinity. This morning, I want to focus uh, the rest of the message on two major attributes or characteristics of God, if you will. And upon first hearing these, they may sound contradictory, and yet both of them are true of God, and so we want to explore them this morning. The first is that God is holy and just, and the second is that God is loving and merciful. Let's take a look at these one at a time. The Bible, first of all, teaches us that God is holy and just. It means that God himself is perfect in every way and that God is always right in all that he does. Exodus chapter 15 verse 11 says, O Lord, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Revelation 4, chapter 4, verse 8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And Moses in Deuteronomy 32. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. O praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. God is indeed perfect and God is always right. What we need to also understand is that in his perfect holiness, God cannot tolerate sin. Psalm 5 verse 4 says, you are not a God who takes pleasure in evil. With you the wicked cannot dwell. God in his holiness and perfection can't simply ignore sin, put up with it, tolerate it. Habakkuk The Old Testament prophet writes, O Lord, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Let's be very clear. God takes sin seriously because rebellion against his will is abhorrent to him in his holiness and his justice. And in his perfect justice, we need to also understand that God must punish sin. He can't simply ignore it. He can't tolerate it. And he actually must punish sin. Ezekiel 18 verse 4, the soul who sins is the one who will die. And St. Paul writes to the Romans in the New Testament, the wages of sin is death. The payment for sin is death. You know, some people at times accuse God of not being fair. I wish God were just more fair. 
fact is, if you think about it, God is perfectly fair. Everybody gets paid the same thing. Death. And why is that? Well, Romans 3.23 explains, all, not some, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And later in that same chapter, or earlier in that same chapter, Paul had said, there is no one righteous, not even one. When we go back to the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah uh, makes it pretty clear too. When he says in chapter 64, all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. In other words, if we are of the mindset to say, well, if I just do enough good things, I can offset my bad things or I can make myself uh, in a right place with God by the good things that I do, Isaiah undercuts that completely. Even our righteous acts are like filthy rags, he says. James uses another analogy to make the same point in his letter, chapter 2. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. I like to call this the balloon principle. How many pinpricks does it take to pop a balloon? Only one, right? One pop, the whole thing shattered. It's no longer a balloon. Likewise, one sin in our life shatters the whole will of God in our life. And there's nothing we can do to repair it by however many attempts we make at doing good things. The point is clear here, friends. When we examine our hearts and our lives in light of God's holiness and God's justice, we all stand condemned. Now, if I were to end the sermon right here and have us all go home after this, we would all leave utterly depressed, wouldn't we? We would all leave with a sense of no hope. The law would have done its job, and the law is good in convicting us of our sins and condemning us. But clearly, the law is not enough. Clearly, understanding God as merely holy and just is not enough. We also need to understand its complementary truth about God. That God is not only holy and just, but God is, and dare I say primarily, he is loving and merciful. When we talk about the nature of God, his primary nature is that he is, as Dr. Seltz said, he is love. To quote 1 John chapter 4, God is love. Psalm 103 verse 8 says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. It is indeed his chief characteristic, if you will, to be loving and merciful if we can't say it more clearly than this, I, I don't know how we can say it. God truly loves people, all people, including you and me. And so we understand that out of his love for people, 
God, who, as we said before, must punish sin, did just that at the cross. God, who is holy and just and must punish sin, punished it in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, at the cross. There, on Calvary's hill, all the punishment to be meted out for the sin of humanity going all the way back to Adam and Eve was poured out on Jesus, who willingly took your place and mine. All of it out of his primary characteristic of love and mercy. Jesus himself said, as recorded by St. John, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, shall not go to hell, but shall have everlasting life. And St. Paul so beautifully said it in Romans chapter 5, a chapter that Martin Luther latched onto with, with all vim and vigor when he came to understand the meaning of the gospel, where St. Paul said, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The gospel is not limited to the New Testament. The good news message resounds clearly in the Old Testament prophets especially. As we hear the prophet Isaiah, who lived 700 years before Jesus was born, say this, Isaiah 53, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. What greater news could there be, friends, that God in his love and mercy gave up his own son in your place and mine? Paul writes to Timothy, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Someone had to pay the price for your sin and mine. Jesus paid that price, the ransom price with his life. St. John writes, he, that is Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. You see, it was out of God's primary nature of love and mercy that he gave his own son to be punished in our place. And the grand and wondrous result, friends, is the forgiveness of our sins and salvation for all who believe in Jesus. St. Paul wrote to the young minister Titus these words, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. 
Well, here's a good Lutheran question to ask. What does this mean? It's a good question, isn't it? comes up in the catechism many times. What does this mean? As we think about God's holiness and justice on the one hand and his love and mercy on the other hand, what does this mean for us? What does all of this mean for us as we seek to live out our Christian faith? I want to propose two things for today to take home. What does this mean? First of all, hear the very first words spoken by Jesus recorded by St. Mark, where he said, repent and believe the good news. What does it mean that God is holy and just and that God is loving and merciful for you and me? It means we need, first of all, to honestly, from the heart, repent of our sins, to acknowledge our waywardness, to confess that to our holy God, and then to believe with all of our heart that Jesus Christ took our place on that cross and that through faith in him, we are forgiven and free and saved. Secondly, what does all of this mean for us as we seek to live out our Christian faith? Well, the second thought comes from 1 John chapter 4 where he writes, Dear friends, since God so loved us, We also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. In other words, God's chief characteristic, love, ought to be our chief characteristic as well. Let me ask you this question. When people observe your life, do they see the love of God? May the Lord Jesus Christ, friends, dwell so fully within each and every one of us that when people look at us, they see him and his love. Amen.